Does your organisation create social change or aspire to? Are you ready to take your work to the next level? Spark Strategy is an agency for strategic thinking, transformation and sustained action. Bringing together ideas, capability and capital, Spark helps the not-for-profit, government, corporate and philanthropic sectors with strategic planning, sustainable business model design and government engagement to unleash their potential and to transform themselves and the societies in which they work and live. As a certified B Corp, Spark stands for purpose, not just profit. So if you're ready to spark ideas in your organisation, go to sparkstrategy.com.au to find out more. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm chatting to Neil Farrow. Neil is a tri-sector executive leader and director with nearly 10 years senior level strategic, corporate and not-for-profit experience, building scalable, sustainable organisations. Okay, so we are dividing this episode up into two parts and I'm also interviewing your colleague Angus, which I'm really looking forward to. And what we want to cover today is the work that you're doing and the work that you're supporting the sector to do with government engagement. So I think to begin with, it would be great if you could frame this topic for us and explain what government engagement is and, and why it's relevant to the sector. So government engagement is something that's relevant not just to the social purpose sector, but for anyone interested in public policy or, or international not-for-profits or, or international affairs generally. Um, it is effectively how... Um, organisations advocate for funding, advocate for policy or regulatory changes and how they engage with government to achieve those changes. So when we talk about government engagement, it's for organisations who are either defending a position or wanting something new done, either from their funding or for policy perspectives. This could be something very simple, like a piece of regulation or, or something in a departmental level, or it could be much more substantial, for instance, growing Australia's international aid budget or, or committing the Australian government to undertake big reforms such as the NDIS. So government engagement from us is all of those components for organisations who are looking at achieving any of those things and making sure that systems and processes are in place that they can engage with government successfully. Right. Okay, that's a great explanation. So is government engagement something that's relevant to all not-for-profits, would you say? I think all not-for-profits to achieve their vision or mission would have an element of government engagement uh, in that space. So a lot of not-for-profits or social purpose organisations are seeking sector change or they're seeking sustainable change. Um, they're seeking, you may have heard the expression before, you know, let's not build better ambulances, let's stop ambulances going off the cliff or, you know, why do we need soup kitchens as opposed to just funding soup kitchens? So any not-for-profit that's genuinely interested or social purpose organisation at uplifting um, their roles and their learnings into structural or systemic change, whether that be through funding, whether that be, be through policy changes or anything in between, um, given that government is 
25% of our economy, um, as well as the big influence of for structural change, um, that's what government engagement and why government engagement is important. So we think all good not-for-profits and social purpose organisations will have an element of government engagement and some it will only be on the side and, and some it will be core to what their work is. Yeah, this is really fascinating. I suppose we can understand government engagement as an element of how a not-for-profit would seek to address the root causes of the problem that they're tackling in society. So as you've said there, in addition to treating uh, the way that problem manifests, also treating the causal factors through policy, advocacy, lobbying, etc. I think that's a a really good um, analysis and reflection of it as well. Not-for-profits are uniquely positioned, those that do deliver services, to actually see what is happening across the service delivery and make opportunities or suggestions to make change. And so it's one thing to continue to receive funding, whether philanthropic or government, to deliver the services, but it's another thing for a not-for-profit to uplift that and say, here's the learnings that we have had across our service delivery and here's how we think you can do that better or more efficiently, or with improved social outcomes. And so the role of not-for-profits in that is, if they're a service delivery organisation, is uplifting and engaging with government for social or systemic change. Other not-for-profits will be defending their position. So, for instance, we've seen over a number of years now a continued reduction of the amount of Australia's budget that's going to overseas aid. You know, if somebody had asked me what would you do about it, I think all of the organisations in that space need to actually do some very deep, thorough government engagement as a sector or as a subsector to try and convince and and articulate the merits of of reintroducing or re-increasing the government aid budget for international aid as another example for a non-service delivery organisation domestically. Yeah, this is really interesting. When you and I have discussed this in the past, you frames it in the context of how the traditional role of lobbying has changed and how the way that we may have lobbied the government in the past is is transitioning into this more government engagement uh, approach. So can you comment on that and, and, and sort of what, what does lobbying mean in this day and age? So what used to happen is the social purpose sector would undertake Uh, research or they do policy submissions and that information would be sent to um, government stakeholders, politicians, members of parliament, um, federal public or state public servants and the not-for-profit space would show leadership around research or innovation or policy thoughts and leadership. Um, What would then happen is usually typically corporate organisations would employ lobbyists Lobbyists are a profession in and of themselves. They're paid quite well and they provide access and networks in order to have profile or have issues raised with the appropriate people. So traditionally, and maybe 10 years ago, you'd have the not-for-profits who would develop policy and research and the corporate sector would employ lobbyists. What's happened over time is both of those have become increasingly um, or or both of them have become less effective in achieving policy change. So lobbyists who you pay for access and purely producing policy and research are no longer achieving the outcomes that either sector needs. And so you've had this development in the middle of of what you call engagement or, or advocacy and campaigning as opposed to lobbying or policy research. And so the government engagement concepts have come out 
of uh, lobbying not working or being too expensive and pure research and pure submissions no longer being effective with government as well. And it's the principle of engaging to build relationships, to inform and drive thought leadership, to have genuine voices heard and provide narratives and relevance to lots of different political stakeholders as opposed to a transactional relationship which may have occurred through lobbying or may have occurred through policy submissions in the past. When did you see this change start to happen? Uh, Look, I think some of the first changes in this space actually happened uh, when uh, John Howard was Prime Minister of Australia at the time, so a a bit more than 10 years ago now, um, particularly because there was some changes to the um, way public servants were appointed. And so the public service lost effectively their tenure. um, And so they could be hired or fired um, at the wheels of political masters. And what that did is it removed some of the capacity of the public service to make independent decisions or or best interest public policy decisions. When you have that coupled with the growth of consulting organisations moving into public service space, you've had some of the capacity reduced from the public service in order to make policy and research-driven outcomes. So you've had um, a a debilitation or a crimping of the public service on one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation is the public's become increasingly cynical, and you're seeing this over pay for access and lobbyists and, you know, money in bags um, of the other end of the equation. And so both of those probably started to deteriorate initially when I think John Howard was Prime Minister, but have continued to devolve over time um, where the public is increasingly getting cynical. So in a number of states and territories in Australia, um, um, ministers' diaries are published and and which lobbyists they meet are published. Um, In states like Victoria now, um, political donations are capped at at around $1,000 per person per year. So you've seen changes in these based on public um, demand for them, um, but you've also seen them based on uh, both lobbyists and traditional research methods being ineffective in in convincing or providing an argument as to why we need to change or fund a policy. I think I find this quite fascinating in the broader context of the changing role of government in uh, not just in international development, but in social services more broadly. But to illustrate it with an international development example, I think so often nowadays we hear international development organisations questioning what the role of government is when a very large part of our aid program has been outsourced, uh, when government funding um, is in some ways in decline for, for foreign aid, as you said. I think it begs the question, what is the ideal role of government in social service delivery? And I think the topic of government engagement is a really interesting lens to look at that through. Look, my thoughts around um, the role of government in that space is that if uh, social policy organisations and social purpose organisations aren't engaging lobbying and campaigning as effectively as the corporate or the private sector, your competitors are arguing for the same share of government voice. So, you know, the competitors to, I say competitors, inverted commas, but the competitors to large not-for-profit organisations aren't other not-for-profits or other international aid organisations. They are for-profit organisations or industry associations because you're all arguing for the same share of time of a politician or the same resources that are available from the public, whether they be direct grants or, or tax concessions or tax benefits. And so um, the, the sector, the social purpose sector, has been um, tricked in a way into competing with each other and arguing amongst themselves for a reducing portion of that as opposed to recognising that their real enemies are organisations that are financially resourced and advocating and campaigning for self-interest, whether they be large private aid providers, 
uh, in the international development space, whether they be the argument that we must give more tax concessions to business over investing in something else, whether we have a tax or don't have a tax, um, because the not-for-profit sector has shied away from some of those discussions, they're having a, a, a reducing space of public voice and political discourse. And so the need for government engagement is more critical than ever in that dynamic. Yeah, that's great. And I and I think what you've touched on there is some of the motivating factors for government engagement. So as you've said, one of those motivating factors would be funding. Um, can you elaborate on that and what some of the other uh, reasons might be that an organisation would choose to improve their approach to government engagement? So government is still the largest purchaser or procurer in Australia. So fundamentally, between 25 and 30 percent of our economy is government procurement. Um, so government buying and selling services. And so there's an immediate role for any organisation that is providing services that they need to consider government as a purchaser or as a supplier or a vendor in, in the procurement space, particularly in things like social enterprise and social procurement. So that's sort of the first area or the first reason why you should engage with government outside of funding. The second area in that space is that a lot of social purpose organisations genuinely believe that they have a role to play to change the system or to make a difference in the system, which is the second element as to why you can engage in government. In the Australian landscape and in a Westminster system like we have, there isn't other ways of making structural and systemic change at scale if government isn't involved in a large number of social purpose sectors. So there's a few small exceptions, but the vast majority of social change has to have had government involved at some stage. The third element for a lot of social purpose organisations is they've been telling philanthropists and high net worth individuals and donors for years that, you know, if you fund us for five or six years, we'll then go to government with a successful program and government will automatically fund it. And that is never the case because at day one, those social purpose organisations are not actually engaging and having the discussions needed to bring allies on board, to bring influencers on board, to build a cohort of cabinet or caucus or local backbenchers who support a program and feel ownership in it. It's kind of like what happens is, you know, the cake's made in the oven for five or six years and it's thrown across the fence and the philanthropists and, and the social purpose organisations are like, oh, it's a great cake, but there's nobody there to catch it. And it kind of lands flat and nobody's really interested and it falls into a messy pile. Um, you know, that sort of analogy has driven a lot of the social purpose sector and their funding over the years. Whereas had you actually said right at the beginning, oh, you know, government, what sort of cake would you like to buy? Oh, we'll have a vanilla cake. You know, you might actually start to flavour the cake such that somebody's going to catch it or at least want to buy it um, at the other end of the equation. And so I think these are cycles, whether it be policy, whether it be procurement, whether it be funding, whether it be philanthropy and systems change, where it pays to make a difference and engage in government with governments sooner rather than later. Yeah, I love that analogy, um, not least because you mentioned cake, which is great, but I think I, I think also because it, it speaks to it speaks to the importance of long-term strategy, doesn't it? Like for an organisation to know what degree of government engagement they need to be doing now, they really need to know where they want to be 10 years from now, right? And I mean, is that, do you think that's something that a lot of organisations know and are clear on or is there room for improvement there? Look, I think there's always room for improvement to improve strategy and, and, and your business models and your strategic thinking. But I do think a lot of not-for-profit and social purpose organisations do have a fairly solid strategy. They're just unsure about government's role in the execution of it. Um, and so while you can always finesse or improve, it's really important that you're engaging sooner on these discussions with government and building stakeholders um, 
uh, that are willing to support and champion your causes as well. Okay, this is really fascinating. So uh, I think we have an understanding of uh, where the government engagement landscape is at in Australia. Um, Australia tends to be a late adopter of trends in the social service sector, in my experience. So what are we seeing internationally? Is the same shift away from lobbying and towards government engagement happening in other contexts? So what we're seeing, if we have a look at what's happening in the US around government engagement, is not-for-profit and social purpose organisations have 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 become infinitely more sophisticated at how they're advocating and campaigning. Um, so the activities that I would only dream of social purpose organisations doing in Australia are happening in the US in order to undertake um, uh, social or, or political change. Now, the reason why they're happening in the US more than anywhere else is because their system of democracy is substantially faltering at the moment. And so... Um, a lot of social purpose organisations are effectively saying, you know, we're going to bet the house um, on trying to shift a system because we've tried everything else. But we're seeing really amazing activism coming out in the US that, that blows the mind of people in Australia. I worked on some projects in the US a couple of years ago where uh, not-for-profits on specific social issues would convince philanthropists to purchase shares in a company that operated in certain states in the US in order to encourage that company to lobby or advocate on specific social issues in their jurisdiction and then go to other philanthropists to buy into that company as well. So, you know, where you're aggregating shareholdings so that you have a directorship to advocate and focus on a very specific state and a social issue in that state where that company has a high profile. You know, that is so many degrees away from um, the activism we see in Australia and so much more sophisticated because that's being run in parallel to 10 or 20 different campaigning activities. You know, in Australia, in this sense, all we seem to have is like, do we buy it or do we boycott it, which is a very simplistic and, and in my view, quite a stupid approach to dealing with social issues of, you know, do you buy or do you boycott when there's actually much more sophisticated ways to bring stakeholders around. So on the US side of the equation, you're seeing much more sophistication around campaigning and engagement um, from not-for-profits. And you'll hear not-for-profits literally say, you know, we own five senators or, you know, we own five members of Congress where, you know, they've spent 20 years building a relationship and, and they've backed in and they support and drive um, a political agenda through effectively congressmen and women and, and senators. Contrasting that to the other end of the equation, if you're having a look at Europe now, um, particularly at the European uh, Union and Parliament level, social purpose organisations are getting more and more voice because they're acting more collegiately as a sector. So what you're seeing, in particularly if you have a look at some of the international development organisations, is you're seeing Denmark, Sweden, Norway and Finland, all of which have their own aid agencies coming in together and advocating on issues systemically as four or five different countries to achieve a social aim. So, you know, some of the Scandi aid agendas have been driven by a number of countries um, even though it's not necessarily in any one of their best interests, but they're trying to achieve something greater. And this is looking at things like aid budget coming out of the European Union countries. So there's different approaches, and Australia's stuck somewhere in between in a lot of those. But, you know, we've got 65,000 uh, not-for-profits or social purpose organisations in Australia. There's maybe a handful of them that I believe genuinely are good at social campaigning and continuous campaigning. I think to finish then, could you give an example of one of those organisations in Australia that you think is is successful at social campaigning? Look, this is always a hard a hard question as to what is successful and, and who's been successful. Um, we ha the, 
there's organisations and, and coalitions that I'd, I'd probably say have been partially successful and then dropped the ball um, or they've achieved something and not quite gone far enough. So, you know, a perfect example of that, and it's very topical at the moment given the discussions in Canberra, is there was a campaign to build the NDIS, which was a consortium called Every Australian Counts, and they ran um, websites and they ran focus groups and they ran media and they met local MPs and they engaged stakeholders and they did all of this great work to get the NDIS over the line. Um, so to that point, tremendously successful. What happened, though, is the moment the NDIS was over the line, everybody went, we're done now, it's all fine, and forget that 90% of the hard work is actually after a policy's been announced or after it's been implemented. And I think why you're seeing pressure points around the NDIS at the moment, whether it be funding, whether it be temporary levies, whether it be transition payments, whether you see a hollowing out of the mid in the mid level of not-for-profits in the NDIS space, is because nobody actually kept their pressure on the political pulse and saying, you know, we want this implemented properly, we want this done well, this is what we think it should cost to treat X or do Y or, or train X or, or do Y. And so I think in that example, while not perfect, I think is a story of a lot of social purpose activities where, you know, you achieve a certain point and then you step off the accelerator and, and it's often usually the worst time to step off. If you have a look at some social movements that have been successful, I think, you know, the obvious one in Australia is, and I was involved in the early stages of it, but some of the stuff around marriage equality from a social progress perspective and what that means for Australians and the ultimate vote and the outcome there. If you have a look at ones that have been unsuccessful is where government has been able to sort of shelve and park or, or hand off uh, to a commission or to an inquiry or just kind of park it in bureaucracy um, as opposed to actually doing something. So, you know, one that's success and failure is, is the NDIS. I think as a social campaign, um, marriage equality has been quite successful. And I think there's a number of others, um, particularly around some of the more pointy and social issues where governments have put them in the too hard basket and there hasn't been the interest to continue the advocacy around them. Yeah, that's an awesome explanation. Thank you so much, Neil. This has been really fascinating and I'm looking forward to continuing the discussion with Angus. The Australian Council for International Development is holding their national conference 23 and 24 October in Sydney. Join Australia's aid and development community to discuss the biggest issues guided by thought-provoking speakers. The conference will focus on how we can go beyond aid to champion sustainable development cooperation. For tickets, visit acford.asn.au. We'll see you there. Okay, so we continue with episode 49 of Goodwill Hunters, and now I'm chatting to Angus Crowther, who is the strategic advisor at Spark. With experience working in ministerial offices within government, Angus has a deep understanding of the political process and how organisations can better engage with government to affect positive and lasting outcomes. Angus has worked on projects, grant programs and policies with investment from 30000 to more than $1 billion working across social and economic policy portfolios. Angus, thank you for making the time to chat with me. No, it's a real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me along. Okay, so when I was speaking to your colleague, Neil, what we really covered was what government engagement is and what would incentivize an organisation to undertake government engagement, things like policy change, funding opportunities. And we also mm -hmm. discussed what's happening internationally, particularly in the US and in Europe. So what I'd love for us to now do is get really practical um, around what can organisations actually do right now to start their government engagement 
journey for want of a better word <laughs> yeah sure and i think that's it's an interesting question and i suppose it's something that often kickstarts the conversation really when we talk to people about government engagement one of the interesting things about it i suppose is uh the experience that people go through or that i see them go through when we start talking about what they can do in a practical sense because for the most part they go oh yeah no, we talk to government and we we talk to our local mp or we talk to this person or that person and we have those relationships then we go okay but how do you manage them and what are the things that you do routinely and you know some of the stuff that we'll talk about tonight they just go wow that makes a lot of sense and no we don't do that at all so it's it's often uh, a fun way to to kickstart these conversations i think one of the most practical things that we do with the people that we speak with and then the clients that we work with is really get them to articulate very clearly like what problem do you exist to solve and off the basis of that, you can really build a much better foundation for what you want to achieve with government as a result. Going to government can be tricky, if, but it's made a lot harder if you really don't know what you're going to them about. And so that first fundamental of getting really clear about what it is that you want to achieve is really important and really fundamental to, to that success. In its most literal form, it's us sitting down with our clients and going, okay, what does that look like? You know, what, what does success look like for you? What are the activities that we're going to undertake to make that happen? What are the timeframes or the timelines that we're working to? Uh, and keeping in mind that we're looking at election cycles are an obvious one, but then looking at budget cycles as well. And that really obviously affects that temporal element there of it in terms of, you know, what's your roadmap ahead of you? So that's sort of, you know, they're, they're broadly, I suppose, in really practical term, they're lists, but they're, but, you know, a strategy is really just a list of things that you're going to do to achieve an end, an end outcome or an end goal. So that's one of the first things that we do is get really practical and down to the nitty gritty in terms of what it is that we want to achieve. That's really fascinating. When you were talking there, the concept of an elevator pitch kept coming to mind for me because I imagine with a lot of these uh, initial interviews with government, whether it be MPs or ministers or whatnot, you don't have an abundant amount of time, right? So you have to be quite no, clear no, no. and quite efficient in communicating, this is what we want, this is what we want you to help us with. Um, mm. In a time-bound sense, like how clearly should you be able to communicate that and how simply as well? Uh, look, I think my experience working in government um, where uh, I was effectively the facilitator, um, you know, the intermediary between the organisation that's come to the minister's office and the department was um, interesting in that I could probably count on one hand the number of times that organisations were really able to succinctly articulate what it is that they were doing, um, what it was that they wanted from government, but then most importantly, what the benefit was going to be to government and how it aligned with government's strategic priorities and vision. So it's absolutely critical. If you've got a 30-minute, and that's just with me as an advisor, you know, if you meet with me, you might have another chance to meet with the, with the minister, you know, depending on how things go. But if you meet with the minister and you get that wrong, you're really looking at sort of a 12-month window before you're able to to meet with them again. So if if you get that wrong, it's you know they're they're not necessarily going to shut you out from any malintent or anything like that. It's just that government is enormous; it's all encompassing. There are so many competing priorities, and if you don't make it really clear how what you're doing fits into those priorities and is effectively a tick against those priorities to assist them, you know, the government in achieving their goals and their objectives 
it's very, very difficult for them to find a reason uh, to support you. And I mean, in many ways, that just makes sense and it's fair and it's the reality of that situation. So it's, it's absolutely critical. And how would you go about sense checking? Like, as you said there, if it was you in the position of being the advisor, uh, an organisation may get another opportunity to then go and chat to a minister. But what would be some of the signs that you're on the right track and that you're ready to have that conversation with a minister? Well, from the perspective of where we sit, we I would say that you're ready to have that conversation when you've got that first step of, you know, really articulating what it is that you hope to achieve, you know, by understanding what problem you exist to solve, et cetera, which is all built around value propositions. Uh, but then we also do uh, electric mapping, postcode mapping and stakeholder mapping, which are some of the other practical tools that we use in terms of trying to understand who it is that is relevant for you to go to government to, like to speak to in addition to a minister, because you need to have just more than one stakeholder in government. So you start mapping which MPs does your organization overlap with either physically in their electorate, or maybe you have customers or, uh, you know, beneficiaries of your organization who reside in their electorate, so you're providing a service to them. Um, whatever it ends up being, mapping your inputs and your outputs, you get a clearer picture of who it is that you need to go to. Once you have that, then you need your organizational data, which tells the story beyond just your anecdotes and your really sort of, you know, your feel-good statements or your, your motherhood statements, I suppose. It's that more hard evidence, or I suppose quantitative evidence of why you're relevant, relevant rather, and, and how you fit into the bigger picture. I would say that there are some fundamentals that you have to have down pat, which give you uh, more of an indication that you're ready to go to government. Um, but the, the last thing there would be um, really clearly defining what your own policy objectives are within the policy environment that you're engaging government in. So whether that's the state or territory level or the Commonwealth level, or even if it's the local government level, understanding what your policy asks are in terms of those high level strategic objectives, in addition to what your practical asks are, if you know we need X number of dollars to achieve Y program for uh, Z benefit in the community, you need to understand that higher level policy ask and position. Once you can articulate that as well, I think that's when you're in the position to be able to go to a minister and make the most of that opportunity that you get sitting before uh, him or her to, to basically put that to them. Yeah, that's really good advice. So the other area that you talk about is um, drivers and barriers, which I think is is much like enablers and preventers, right? Like what are the yes, factors yeah. outside of uh, the change you're trying to create that impact upon success? So can you talk about the importance of knowing those? Yes, yeah, certainly. And I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that I think um, – in its simplest sense, people have this idea that if you're dealing with a government that's left-leaning or right-leaning, that it, you know, is an immediate hard indicator of whether, uh, you know, whether if, um, how do I put this? If you are, if you perhaps consider yourself more progressive organization as opposed to a conservative organization, you might think that if you are going to a government that has opposite values to you, that you've got no way of making inroads in terms of what they're doing. And so that may seem to be a barrier. But the reality is, is that no matter the political colour or persuasion of the people you're going to, government has to provide services fundamentally, fundamentally first and foremost. And so, particularly in the not-for-profit sector where we're working, that's primarily what we're driven by, right, is it's, it's delivering a service in some way. Obviously, if we're doing policy change or legislative change, it might be a little bit different to that. But government still has to do that. 
something that you can do which is an enabler to overcome those barriers is to understand what the political policy platform is of the party who's in government, whether it's the ALP or whether it's a Liberal and National Party government, understanding what it is in their policy platform or equivalent document um, is that underpins their policies in government is really important. So, for instance, if you were to go to uh, if you were to go to a liberal a liberal National Party government and you were talking sort of like you know uh, chalk and they were looking for cheese because you haven't bothered to do your research about their policy positions, they actually might think that you've got a really nice idea, but it doesn't align with what they're doing strategically. And so you need to do your research there in terms of overcoming those barriers. I think one of the other things that's a really important enabler in this situation as well is coming back to the power of data within your organisation. I think that organisations in the space that we operate in, and we also do some work with corporates as well who have uh, a social purpose or you know a, a, a social benefit component of the work that they're doing, they're really good at telling a story about what it is that they go and do. But when you're dealing with government, if you don't have the political narrative going your way, i.e. if there isn't a really compelling reason that's generally going to be in the media um, that sort of pushes government in the direction of supporting you, you've got to have an evidence base of some of some kind. Definitely be really good at telling those stories because they're interesting stories and they're stories that ministers and MPs and senators can put their faces next to in a media, uh, you know, not, not necessarily a media release, but on a social media post or in a local media outlet or something like that, which are a platform that they get to use by virtue of associating themselves with you and helping you, which quite literally, you know, goes out into the faces of voters, which is ultimately who they're accountable to. So I think those are, those are some really key things that we look at in terms of enablers overcoming barriers. I suppose it's a little bit difficult to sort of drill down into it a bit further because what we find is that there are a lot of common issues or barriers that people come up against, but everyone seems to have their own particular fundamental strategy in terms of how they overcome it. And I think that's a really interesting thing in the not-for-profit space because having uh, not a great deal, but a little bit of commercial experience in the private sector, business does seem to be a little more cut and dry. I'm not sure why that is, but in the not-for-profit sector, people just have really interesting stories and they have different constraints placed on them as well. And so everyone's kind of innovating or, you know, um, working as they go to understand what it is that they've got and what they can do with it. And I think that's really challenging, but I think it's also really rewarding and makes it quite special as well. Yeah, I agree. That That's, that's a really interesting take on it. I, I think something that I imagine is a challenge, and correct me if I'm wrong because you're working in this every day, is when you talk about identifying what the hook is for government, that puts you in quite a different frame of mind to thinking what's in the best interests of our beneficiaries or the people that we're trying to help. Mm. It's really mm. hard to balance the interest of your different stakeholders. And mm-hmm. I mean, what do you do in the event that what's in the interest of government isn't in the interest of your stakeholders? <laughs> so that's a little bit more fun, I suppose. Uh, but it, but it's also, it's a, it is a more difficult stage in a government relations journey, I suppose, or a government engagement and advocacy journey. We basically break down government engagement in the method that we employ into three phases. And so what you're talking there would really be a phase three sort of, um, you know, so a really top performing organization where you've built up, uh, you know, your internal infrastructure, your systems, your processes, we've upskilled 
their staff by through our capability and coaching sessions. Uh, and we've got resources that are ready to go to effectively wage a campaign, a campaign for change. And so I think, you know, some organisations are well-placed to do that. Uh, and I mean, I guess the, the really big ones that everyone knows about, and not that we do work with these, but just as, uh, just as an example, like a GetUp, for instance, has all of the, you know, organisation resources and infrastructure to go and be able to do that. Uh, and often you see that that's why they exist, because they have an issue that they want to really interrogate and press upon government, and government has a contrary position, which have a group of passionate people who want to go and do that. The reality is, is that you can still do that even if you don't have a whole heap of resources, a whole, whole, whole lot of people. I work with uh, a two-person team who are a, um, a media and entertainment organization who create really beautiful, visually stunning um, short films. Like and when I say short, I say, I mean like three to eight minutes max kind of thing. And they're all based around social issues. And I'm working with them at the moment to help them um, work in with government uh, to uh, help government tell the, their story better around a particular social issue. Uh, what's interesting is is that they're a two-person band. They've never been to government before. Uh, we've been working with them for coming up to four months now, I think. Uh, had sent off some letters, but had had standard responses of, you know, oh, that sounds like a lovely idea. Here's all the stuff that we're doing, you know, and the inferred part there is we're not going to help you because we don't need to because we've got this covered. We have fundamentally transformed that, and I was catching up with uh, one of the team this week and we were counting out the number of engagements that they've had. And in the state where they're operating, they've met with six senators, 13 MPs. It'll be three ministers as of next week, six ministers' offices and the premier's office. Now, to be clear, we don't have anything yet, but to have gone from zero to that and to be building awareness in government where people previously knew nothing about them um, and where people are basically saying, actually, you know what, I think we can make this work. I think we can make this work. We did that because we did a process of stakeholder mapping, understanding, understanding who we had contacts to and who had a, a reason to respond to us. We looked at an issue that government had pressing upon them and we understood fundamentally what it was that, uh, you know, we could do in this space that government was trying to do but wasn't doing very well, which was basically conveying a message in a really powerful, thought-provoking and cut-through way, in a way that allows people to really experience the issue without being confronted by it, because it's quite a confronting issue as well. Uh, and then taking that to government as a bit of a, well, not as a bit of, but quite literally as a, we have the solution to your problem and we have the capability as well. We would love to partner with you to make this a reality. On that point, I think one of the things that's really interesting and what I saw a lot in government as well is that there was nearly no one who walked through a door to a meeting who didn't want something, which is fine because that's what they're there for. But very, very few times did I hear about what's in it for me from the perspective of government or the person who's sitting there, whether they be an MP, a minister or other. And that's really, really important because politics is about creating effective politics anyway. Um, genuine bipartisan politics is about creating a shared platform. And that means that it has to be a cohesive platform in finding common interests. I think, and this is just a personal reflection, if I may, may indulge, I think one of the issues with what's happened in our political sphere where things seem to be getting really um, taut and difficult is that people put their own interests ahead of the interests of others far too often. And when that plays out in our political arenas, people's passion and unfortunately also their vitriol come to the fore and they cloud 
their it clouds their judgment and unfortunately it clouds the judgment of others as well because that dialogue in terms of finding a real shared solution that all parties can own and execute upon that breaks down and so you're not able to achieve those really great end outcomes to be clear i think government has a really important role and i think that they still still do deliver some really uh, genuinely amazing stuff um, but I think that's one of the challenges there as well. And trying to steer clear of that is, is fundamental and important in terms of what we do. We talk about avoiding, you know, a scorched earth approach, um, which I have seen with another client uh, very shortly after they joined us. Uh, coming up to 12 months ago, and they went, we've gone and done this thing. And I looked at it and I went, I really wish you would have asked us before you did this, because this is going to be way harder to do anything about now. So. Yeah, it's such a fascinating topic. And I find in light of um, all of the recent climate protests and Extinction Rebellion and all of this really hardcore activism and advocacy that we have going on, that age-old debate of change from within versus change from outside comes Mm, up again mm. and again. And should you work with government to create a change or should you protest against them? Um, And what I've kind of gathered from what you've said there is... in an, you know the initial phases in stage one when you're still developing your government engagement capabilities look for common ground look for mutual benefit don't mm-hmm. you know don't look for that radical policy change early on but rather look at what the existing government agenda is and look at how there can be mutual benefit for your beneficiaries and for the government absolutely and i think you've got to see these things as stepping stones as well uh, you know i think Marriage quality is a really good example of that. You know, it was about breaking down what it was that people in the gay and lesbian community uh, wanted. You know, we didn't, it was, uh, you know, people in the contrary argument went straight to the end of like, oh, well, we just want marriage. You want, to, you want to get married the way that a man and a woman does. But it got broken down into individual parts where it was like, well, it's about love. It's about, it's about equality. It's about mutual respect. It's about, um, you know, a fundamental uh, promise that other people get to make to each other, being able to be shared amongst consenting adults, irrespective of whether they're, um, you know, different genders or the same gender. And when it got broken down, I, and and you know, people of the public had an opportunity to sort of dissect that and understand that. I think it became less threatening because it didn't. It wasn't so much about. And I'm sure there are people who still have a contrary view to me, but in my experience with this, it became less so, so, so much less about you're trying to take something away from us as heterosexual people to oh, this is a human thing and this actually is about love and compassion and care and kindness. And so it just broke it down into little bits and pieces. And those stepping stones were the path that you had to take in order to achieve that end end outcome, that end goal. The other thing as well is, you know, significant system change. If you're having really large and momentous legislative change, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a Pantene Pro V ad. It's, you know, uh, <laughs> it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. And that's just that resilience and grit that you've got to have in the face of these things. And, but sometimes as well, you've got to be prepared to accept that a compromise is a good deal. And again, that's that bipartisanship. That's finding common ground. Simply saying, well, it's not perfect and it doesn't live up to my ideal standard and kicking the bucket and, you know, slamming the door, whatever it is, it's just not helpful. And particularly when you're in, um, when you're in an environment where the discourse does need to remain civil and you can actually only affect 
a dialogue of change while you remain engaged with the people that you need to be engaged with. And the reality is, is that the people who are in government are there because they have won elections by mandate, you know, by popular vote, and they have the authority and the power to do what they want. They're the decision makers. Like, sure, you might be able to wait them out, but you're kind of doing a disservice to your cause, I think, if you're not trying to find those stepping stones along the way to convince them and change them. And I also have, I think it's also an important thing to remember as well is that if you're, if you genuinely believe in your argument, then it's up to you to make it as well. It's up to you to make it. And so they're one of the, that's another thing that we look at too is about, well, how do we send this message that we've got in such a way that it can be received by the people that we're communicating with? Because it's easy to just write off others uh, who don't agree with you as, you know, to put it bluntly, as stupid. It's far harder to understand the needs and interests of others and actually really stand in their shoes and understand what it is that they're thinking, what it is, what their values and their beliefs are. But if you can do that and you make a practice of doing that, then you can really create a narrative for what your change is and genuinely find what's in it for them and communicate that to them in an intelligent uh, and empathetic way. And that's how you drive change as well. I think that's such brilliant advice. And I think, you know, in the midst of campaigning and policy and all, you know, all the big organizational side of it, we forget the importance of emotional intelligence and empathy, which at the end of the day, you know, nothing replaces those skills. Definitely. And I think it's important as well. You know, one of the other things that we say is, you know, have a heart. Politicians are people too. Uh, you know, I have friends that I've worked with before I worked in politics and after who've gone on uh, to work in higher political offices that I have. Um, and I've, and then I have friends who've run for political office. Some have been successful, most who haven't. But the gauntlet that you have to run to gain elected office is really something. And so I think, you know, it's important to have a heart and remember that they are people too. And ultimately, they're doing the best on the basis of what it is that they believe in. And I think when you remember that too, when you're coming back down to, you know, coming back down to whatever it is that your cause or the changes that you're trying to seek, it's really in your best interest to understand those things too and and remember that it will put you in a better position uh, in terms of being able to negotiate in a clever and tactical way, coming back to those sort of strategic um, elements. Um, and, and I think as well from another fundamental perspective, you can, if you ref- if you reframe the situation, you can use that all, all of that emotion that you might have around an issue that frustrates you to actually serve your cause better. I think it's important to remember, you know, what or to ask yourself the, the question of, does this serve me? Does this serve the outcome that I'm seeking? Does it serve me to, to, in terms of like the purpose that I'm driven to achieve? And that's another fundamental of what we think about and we talk about probably not quite as pointedly as that, uh, but in terms of the way that we really facilitate the conversations that we have with our clients when we're sort of brainstorming a lot of what's going on. Because what we do is we don't become content experts in the areas in terms of what we're dealing with with our clients. I mean, I'm probably fortunate doing what I do that I have a natural, um, a natural, naturally inquisitive nature, and I'm just generally interested in loads and loads of different things. I've probably, I've definitely inherited that from my own father, um, but uh, I will never presume to be the subject matter expert my client will always be that what i will do is i will be the, the expert in a process i'll be the expert in understanding the politics and the dynamics and understanding the levers of government and how to uh you know 
move your organization in terms of the activities and the tactics that you employ to really achieve those goals that you have written down somewhere back in that first practical step that we talked about, about getting really practical about what is it that you want to achieve and what is it, what problem do you exist to solve? Definitely. Okay. I'm going to ask you a hard question to finish. Um, Sure. (laughs) So... If one of our listeners has just heard this episode, they've realized that they're not doing government engagement very well, but they need to, and they're feeling inspired, what can they do first thing tomorrow when they get to the office? Okay. So the first thing that they can do tomorrow is they can understand who the relevant stakeholders are that they need to be speaking to. And now most people can tell me who the minister is and the portfolio that they fall within, but many Uh, Many people, if not most, again, can't tell me how other portfolios outside of their immediate minister might be responsible or might have an overlap or some sort of role to play in terms of what they're doing. So you should start a process of stakeholder mapping, which is understand who are the people we need to talk to, and then look at the links that you have, which are existing, that you have to them, whether it's through a common contact, but then also on your social media platforms. And then you need to look at your own internal documents that go out, such as, you know, if you have an EDM or a newsletter or something like that, have you included them on that mailing list so that they at least have some awareness of what's going on? Think about how you would contact them in a formal way. Have you ever written them a letter? If you have, have you framed the message in such a way that is compelling for those people, for for those MPs or ministers, to actually respond to your letter in terms of relevance? If they're an MP, have you been really clear that you're actually either an individual who's a constituent in their electorate or a business slash organization who is still a constituent body that's in their electorate and invited them along to come and have a look at what's going on. Don't tell them about your problems straight away. Talk about the problems that you have and how you're working hard to challenge them and how you'd love them to come along and see that great work that's going on. The other thing, so that's sort of that beginning of stakeholder mapping and then really a bit of a a comm strategy, that piece there. Um, I also think the other thing that they could do is have that conversation internally in your organization. It's really important to get buy-in at basically, we, we say from the executive level down, I think that it doesn't necessarily have to start there. That executive or board level can be convinced and we've seen that happen. Um, but I think you've got to have that conversation with your colleagues in terms of understanding um, what level of willingness there is in your organization, but also level of understanding of the government, the function of government and how it works as well. Uh, because if you are met with a lot of antipathy um, or sometimes just a lot of fatigue because politics, the way that it is, it can be quite exhausting. And so people sort of turn off from it. That's the big tragedy of all this stuff is that we can't live without it. Um, but, it, you know, I think um, I was at uh, a talk about 18 months ago and Penny Penny Wong happened to be there and she made some comment that was basically like, you know, you can choose to not engage by politics, uh, to not to engage with politics, but you cannot choose to be unaffected. And I think that kind of says it all. So having that conversation inside of your organisation and getting buy-in from your team members is really important. Fantastic advice. Uh, it's been so wonderful to chat to you, Angus, and also to Neil. So thank you so much for being on the show. No, it was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me along. 